Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. With a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A star-filled sky was once our evening entertainment, but now it's Netflix, iPads, Bluetooth, whatever. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og, and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. And tonight... I'm very happy to be talking with Brennan Dew. And Brennan, I'll let you explain a little bit about yourself and how you got to be where you are and why I would be uh, interested in talking with you about the, the uh, subject of light. But I will tell the audience that you professed on one of our tours that you were leading in Egypt that you watched an Indiana Jones movie and may have been inspired by that. So tell us more. Yeah, thank you for the invitation to come and talk. Um, probably my mum told that story. So it's one where I think I was four or five years old. We were on a bus travelling somewhere and uh, the bus driver or someone down the front was asking, what movie should we put on? And this little boy, which was me 20-something years ago, uh, <laughs> screamed out, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And I, I actually think that's where uh, my sort of path came all began and, and uh, it got me where I am today, got me to Egypt with uh, you and your, your tour yeah. um, and will take me into the future. And so what is that path? So there's a, probably a long answer here. Um, I would probably describe myself, uh, it probably changes depending on who I'm talking to or what crowd I'm talking to, but I think it's best captured as a cultural astronomer. Um, I'm very interested in history and ancient history, um, as well as being interested in astronomy. And um, my current path of research is one I'm working on my PhD, where I think about or try to research how ancient cultures uh, tried to comprehend the sky and the universe um, much before modern day science. So I'm, I'm trying very hard to finish my PhD at the moment, which has a focus on Egyptology um, mm -hmm. and, and their, their understandings of the universe. Okay. And so I've actually had the opportunity to speak with Clive Ruggles, who is oh. an, a fairly eminent, and actually I won't say fairly, indeed an eminent archaeoastronomer. He Is wrote that, the book on it, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and so do you follow in his footsteps in any way? or? I think so. So in my understanding, archaeoastronomy has a connection with the land and landscape as well. Um, and Clive wrote the actual handbook of archaeoastronomy, um, so where he talks about a lot of different sites, including Egypt, which would be my focus. Um, but I think I would extend more into uh, conceptual or maybe uh, ancient thought lines. And, and what I like to describe as pre-scientific ideas, although it's a bit difficult to push this term of science onto a culture that didn't have a, a word like that, where in, in the ancient past it was very much surrounding religion. 
Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, Clive Ruggles is certainly um, paving the way in, in this sort of combined history and astronomy field. Um, and I think I crossed paths him, with him once at Sydney Observatory as well. He's a very chatty, knowledgeable person. Lovely man. Yeah, very yeah, nice absolutely. to talk with. So tell me about your PhD, if you can, and and what the background is to that. So I know you've made a few trips. In fact, we should, should probably disclose that we've worked together at Sydney Observatory. Yes. And also that you've led one of my tours to Egypt in, with Dark Sky Traveller. But... And I, so from that, I know that you've done a few trips to Egypt. What, what were you looking for when you're there? So perhaps I should jump a little bit further back again. So I guess going throughout high school, I, I always had a history, oh, a, a interest in history and astronomy, um, led by sci-fi as well. Um, and for probably some people in your audience, um, I think Daniel Jackson from Stargate SG-1 was a, <laughs> a bit of a hero um, back in the day. And yeah, I've always, a few heroes sort of, there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I've always sort of sat on the boundary of, of history uh, and astronomy, I think, and, and somewhat through my own indecisiveness, I've continued to sit on that boundary um, and found that I do have a passion for history. Um, I think Egypt in particular, because it's just so curious and such a recognisable um, culture. It really stands out uh, for anyone who, or I think of every age, would, would know a mummy or a pyramid comes from Egypt when they see it. I think you're right. I think even now with all of the, the troubles that are going on in the Middle East, etc., Egypt still mm. remains this destination for tourists. And, you know, whether they've studied it at school or not, there's this fascination for this weird art that happens on the walls and these fantastic pyramids and, yeah. and understanding a little bit of the culture that goes behind that. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's, it's a truly fascinating thing. And I think the same thing is true for astronomy. Astronomy is just a subject of curiosity. Like, why is all that space out there? What is there? And what came before it? What will happen to it? So these two sort of paths uh, have, have piqued my interest for a long time. Um, when I was deciding to, to, after school, where to go with that, I, I chose Macquarie University. Um, almost only because they had a class where I could learn to read uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs, um, which was very enticing. And they also had a class called Fieldwork where <laughs> you could go to Egypt and, and start uh, and help with the excavations. And, that sounds uh, enticing, yes. It, it got me in. And at the same time, I, I also concurrently studied um, astronomy with the major uh, science and a major of astronomy and astrophysics. And... I guess I got accepted into Macquarie, so I started to learn hieroglyphs, did that for a few years, and then got the opportunity to join um, one of the Macquarie teams. There's actually several who work in Egypt um, throughout the country on their individual excavations. Um, So I joined the Macquarie Thebans Tombs Project, first of all, as a student, where I was learning archaeological methods, which was in 2012. And then uh, since then, I've turned it into an almost annual pilgrimage. I mm-hmm. like to go back every year if possible and um, outside of all, oh, uh, there's a couple of years I've missed, but I've been there quite frequently. And now I'm a, a core part of the team. Um, so specifically, we're working on a tomb that's in Luxor in the south. Um, it's a tomb of a somewhat um, high official whose name was uh, Amen Mose. He lived about 1,000 200 years before BC, um, so it's 3,000 3, or so years ago. And what we're trying to do is salvage what is there, uh, record it and conserve it. 
So there is uh, part of my, well, it's not, it's not relate, exactly related to my research. My research is more, um, I guess, hmm, where to start with this? When talking about ancient Egypt, there's a very long um, history to talk about. So from 3000 or so BC all the way up until Greek or Roman uh, took over. So my interest is around the New Kingdom. It's about 1300 to 1100 BC. And specifically, I am looking at, for my research, the uh, the texts on the walls in the Valley of the Kings, um, which we explored in detail on, on, our, on our trip there. And I've been there many times trying to very strategically photograph every surface mm-hmm. I can. And these texts themselves are a, uh, what it, they describe the journey of the sun from when it sets, where it goes, through what landscapes it travels and, and all the enemies or figures it might encounter, and then what happens before it um, arises the following morning. So for the ancient Egyptians, this was very much a, uh, a somewhat unknown territory. So I think that they somehow created these texts to try and explain or contain the unknown. And it's inside the, the tombs of the Valley of the Kings where my core interests of astronomy and, and Egyptology combine. So. Mm. I, I hope to read the, or I have been reading these texts through the eyes of an astronomer, um, trying to figure out their worldview at the time, mm-hmm. which is a very long answer. I don't even yeah, know. If I... no, no, you answered it. That's fine. Okay. So let's go back and, and take a little little bit by bit. First of all, you mentioned that Macquarie University has several sites, and yes. I just have a really basic question: How on earth do do you, as one, as a university? obtain a, a a tomb in Egypt to be able to excavate it? That is a good question. And it's something that I would say is reasonably hard to establish. You have to be a, a university or a museum or someone with a, a research interest in it. But then once it's established, it's uh, they, they are very easy to maintain and continue. So 20 or 30 years ago, um, the professors at Macquarie University would have put a bid in for for excavating and working in the country. Um, Egyptology is very much an an international um, pursuit. And then they were successful on their application and then have kept their their working concession open and sort of hopped around to different sites. So my specific team have been working in the area since the 90s and have excavated and recorded three or four different tombs. Wow. It's it's very hard to to write research grants though and, and things to to capture our interest in something that's antipodal and almost directly opposite side of the world. Mm. Um, but I think we have the skills and we are interested in in yeah, learning more and, and sharing this research. Mm. And, uh, and 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 the history of doing so as well successfully mm. by the sound of it. The last yeah, time. yeah. Mm. And and then the other question I have of what you said before is that the tomb that you're researching specifically is the tomb of uh, a wealthy I'm in man. Mostly, or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How do you know that? How do you know what hierarchy he was, and and what what was the culture of the time that uh-huh. would have placed him in that hierarchy? Mm. So this is part of the research goal. So there is a, a physical tomb in the place that we're working. And when we arrived, not a lot was known about the, the individual or or his name or his rank. But part of the pursuit is to um, piece together what remains. In this case, it means reading the walls. On the walls, his name is there. His family tree is there. And his, uh, his job titles were there as well. Mm-hmm. So the, the tomb is very much... a 
a, a kind of brag about how he existed in the life so mm. that he could continue that existence in the afterlife. Okay. Hmm. So we touching on culture with and obviously this podcast's about light and Ooh, your yeah. research is about it. Yeah. What significance did light play? And it, was it just through the day you talked about the sunrise and going through the, the landscapes, et cetera? Yeah. What about night light? Was there anything specifically dedicated to that, you know? I think lights would have played a very significant role in, in everyone's life. And kind of as, as you mentioned in, in your little intro, today we flick a switch when we walk into a room, we don't even think about it, and we extend a large amount of our activities into the night period without paying attention to everything around us. Um, and, of course, this wasn't the case in ancient cultures. They would have been very connected to the daily cycle. Um, they believed that the sun was this creation myth where the sun created everything and the lights provided them with their warmth, their ability to grow things. Um, and... Uh, the the sun was really the the giver of life so it was a very important thing for the sun to be able to make its journey every day it did have some connections with with um the, the conceptual thought so the egyptians believed that the the gods were made out of gold and that's probably a, a simple color relation to the color of the golden sun when it shines and they today we quite rightly take it for granted that the sun will shine every single day and will rise every single day. Mm. Um, but in, in ancient Egypt in particular, they didn't think that was the case. So they would take as many precautionary steps as possible to ensure the sun god itself, which is usually some manifestation of Ra, um, would continue to travel across the sky every day. Throughout the night, there would be certain recitations and things they needed to do because the sun would encounter enemies that try to stop it. And if the sun was ever halted for any reason, I'm quite convinced that the Egyptians thought that it could be a reality that the sun would not rise again. Mm -hmm. So they would exist in this sort of eternal darkness. So the sun uh, and the light it provided was very much a, um, a part of everyday life for, for every individual, I think. Mm. Um, actually, just as you were talking about that, I've, I've just been writing an article today and I've, I've been thinking about eclipses. And you mentioned that, this, you know, what happens if the sun doesn't rise? Well, I imagine at some period in, in the ancient Egyptian history, there would have been an eclipse that went through that path. And so there would have been a time that the sun got stalled somewhere behind the, the shadow of the moon. And Yeah, mm. which is a really interesting thing because this would have upended their, their beliefs and they certainly would have thought this was a very bad outcome. But one really curious thing about um, the greatest majority of Egyptian culture is that even though they physically worshipped the sun itself, they didn't record anything particularly bad that happened to the sun. And I think in a lot of cultures, pre-scientific cultures, things like eclipses or comets were... were bad omens because mm. they believed that these bad things were happening uh, to the gods. So the, throughout the majority of pharaonic Egypt, they didn't ever record an eclipse occurring. Mm. And it's probably because of this real fear. They thought that the sun was going out. Um, there are wonderful tables that I spend a lot of time looking at that show people that eclipses did happen in Egypt 
and would have been visible to e in Egypt? That was one of my questions. So it did happen, but the, it was the fear that actually stopped them writing it down. Probably, probably something like that. And, and, mm. and there's also within the Egyptian language an idea about magic. So putting something into writing gave it its own life. So if they wrote down that the sun one day went out for three minutes or two minutes, um, it, it would not be a great thing. So there's no doubt that Egyptian, that eclipses did occur, but it's just it's strangely absent from any sort of written record. And the same thing with... Quite with amazing, many, really, isn't it? it, it, it it's astounding that it's not It is for a culture that pays so much attention to the, the sun and the, even the stars. There's very little um, evidence of, of any sort of astronomical observations or astronomically bad things, which is a bit hard for a cultural astronomer interested in specifically that thing. <laughs> but I think that it still exists. It's just probably more in, intertwined with religion. So there's this great story of how Horus and, and Seth, two of the gods, combated with each other. And one um, scholar whose name could be Jane Sellers, Robin someone Sellers, thinks that this is um, a prehistoric sequence of eclipses that would have happened in over the course of one generation oh. and these things which might have been physical observations then turned into some sort of etiological mythology so mm. Mm. i think the information is there it's just not explicit mm. perhaps is the way to put it. Mm -hmm. it it's told in a different way which we yeah which, yeah, mm. which is what I hope you to can I, unravel <laughs> well that's the goal yeah i hope mm. to find out more about these things through the lens of being an astronomer. Mm. And what about just things like stars and moon? How do they play into culture and, and you know, how are they represented? Um, the moon is an interesting one. The moon was also uh, a deity or its name was Iach, often re related with Thoth. And, again, the, the moon, uh, it's helped uh, the timings of, of a lot of their, their feasts and celebrations. But again, they, they sort of didn't really, they didn't like wasting away or didn't like things that were bad. So there would be a lot of celebrations about the growing moon because a growing moon has relation or sort of waxing, yeah, so it's getting bigger. And it had um, connotations or, or relations to the harvest and the growing of crops and things but there's very little talking that, that talks about the, the waning moon when it gets thinner probably because of some, some sort of wasting away idea that they didn't like writing about um, and the stars um, the stars are interesting there's this one mythological idea around about the new kingdom where they believed that the sun after well they believed that the sky was this metal sheet because they had made the connection that when meteorites fell from the sky these things were made out of metal yeah and that, and there was that there's a who was it that had the sword that was made out of Ah, the dagger of Tutankhamun. Yeah, was Tutankhamun. Mm. Yes, which shows that this is some sort of godly metal. So they believed the sky was this metal firmament and at time various rocks or things or, or, or metals would fall out of the sky. One cosmographical idea was that when the sun went down, it then was able to travel above that metal sheet. My hands are moving a lot, which probably doesn't make sense in audio. But the, the, the moon would move, no, sorry, the sun would move above that metal sheet and shine through the little holes left in the, the metal firmament. So when you're seeing stars in the night, they thought they were seeing the sunlight still, which I actually think is quite a, a, a 
nice way to piece the evidence together. Mm. Although, unfortunately, it's terribly wrong by <laughs> what we know today. So, and, and the, star, the stars as well, there's a, the stars helped with um, timing, timing things during the evening and even figuring out the seasons and seasonal changes, the length of the year at 365 days, I think is an Egyptian. Um, they worked that out. Yeah, that was done based off the rising of Sirius. So they, uh, Sirius is the brightest star in the sky. Also the name of a ship in the first fleet and of Harry Potter's godfather. Which, <laughs> um, so they, the, the rising of Sirius happens, um, it happened to coincide with roughly the same time period as the Nile flooding every year. So they noticed that when the star rose just before sunset, the Nile flood would be a, a few days or weeks afterwards. And then over the course of a few years, realised that this happens uh, annually and then pieced together that the year must be 365 days long. They never really accounted for the, the leap day, which does interesting things with their calendar, um, but they would have always paid attention to the rising of Sirius to, to mark the flood. Hmm. So I think the Egyptians were very much in tune with the sky and the the movements of the things around them um, and much more than we are today where mm. we're inside the lights are on we don't know what the stars are doing or what what phase the moon is in no actually just as you were talking about the the metal sheet across the sky you know letting the sunlight mm. through for, the, for where the stars would be it reminded me of an experience i actually had at sydney observatory where a lady came up to me and she said, it's, I've just realised that the stars are always in the sky. It's just that the sunlight blocks them out. And it, it, it's kind of, it's, if, I'm not sure if I'm explaining that very well, but what she'd realised was that it's just the sunlight that was causing that, 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 that yeah. kind of blockage. And so it's it sort of the opposite way around, that rather than the sun coming from above causing the stars, she, she hadn't realised that it, there were stars and planets always above us. They, we just can't see them. Which is a really, I think, sort of interesting concept to get your head around. And I think it's, it's quite a common misconception. But, yeah, the, our sun just outshines all of the other stars. Mm. Um, and another interesting one is that um, often, uh, so you mentioned I also work at the observatory, so I, I do a lot of tours there. And often people just um, are so disconnected from the sky, I think, thanks to light and, and Netflix and Bluetooth, as you talked about before, be, and don't realise that the, the moon is not always in the night sky, that mm. the moon can be visible in the day. Even Venus can be visible in the day if you know where to look. So there's, mm. um, there's a big problem, which is yeah. Uh, yeah, our, our disconnectedness uh, from the and sky. I, and that's where I guess I was leading, was that we are now falsely creating that, that outshining of the sun in our evening sky by putting light pollution up into it, basically. And so yeah. kids now are thinking that it's normal to only see 27 stars or half a dozen stars, or if you're lucky, you might see the, you know, the big planets, etc. And And when it's only when they go out to the country and they think, oh, you know, there's so many more stars. And, and the, the number of kids I've said, well, that's actually what they're all there. They're always there all the time. Yeah. We're just creating this false ceiling that means that we can't see them. Which is sad that this is the case, but also exciting that we live in Australia where you can drive an hour or so from almost any location to see the Milky Way or a couple of hours to see it in detail. Mm. But can we fix this? I guess you're on the mission. <laughs> Look, I think it, I think there will come a time where 
technology, I mean, we already have the technology to stop upward light spills. So we, you know, by, the, by that, I mean that we have full cutoff lights that only point directionally downwards. Yeah. Uh, but, and so that means that we will always have the night sky. At some stage, all the councils in the world, all the governments, all the policymakers, et cetera, will think about putting in lights that stop upward reflected lights. But there's still uh, things like office lights that are on in buildings. There's, um, and, yeah. and, and actually what some of the other podcasts and I have just discussed is the fact that rather than having light upwards and not being able to see the stars, we're actually shifting the problem downwards because now we're changing the nocturnal habits of bats and insects and pollinators and turtles. You know, and, yeah, so it, it's a much bigger problem than just missing out on the stars, really. Um, and there's an, an inertia involved as well where there's no real incentive to change things. Well, the incentive is gaining the sky back, but there's no nothing that will push it, uh, apart from people like yourself, or, and starting these conversations. I think it's education, yeah. I think mm. when people realise, and, and actually that's the, th the thing that I've loved doing and, and one of the reasons I started this podcast was so that when I take people out into environments at night, I've got all these different things and different um, stories I can tell them and, and ideas and concepts from various different, you know, from culture, from ecology to science and astronomy mm. um, because whatever captures someone's imagination and curiosity to get them out in the night sky again will start yeah. to develop that love. And I think coming back to our topic tonight, one of the, the things that, that I want to ask you is you know, we, we don't have a relationship with night because our relationship with twilight's actually ending now as well. You know, we, as soon as it starts to get dark, we put on the light and we, you know, we don't even, we basically yeah. just have this, this bland period of daylight that we have a light on at a certain time until we go to sleep. Basically. Yeah. But what sort of activities do you think the Egyptians were doing in twilight with it all evening? Were there certain, do you know of any, you know, were there, were there any actions that were performed, rituals mm. or? Yeah, there, there certainly would have been. I think um, in our modern day, our functioning hours, are, as you're saying, they're very much influenced by, well, they're not influenced by light at all because we can create our own light. But in, in Egypt in particular, they would have very much lived by sunrise and sunset and the heat would have been a factor in, in that mm, as well if it's very hot mm. there. So the majority of their actions would, would have taken place during light hours. Um, and it wouldn't... I can't imagine that it would have spread too much further into the evening. So they had fire and, and some others candle or lamp-like artificial lighting. Um, so, so the core activities were very much uh, within the daytime itself. Within the more religious sphere though, there are ways that they tried to keep time overnight, which was by making certain um, celestial observations or even things like uh, water clocks that would gradually drip out water over the course of a night so they could track time. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in another tomb actually that Macquarie was working in, there was a, a man named Amenemope, which is very similar to the, the tomb we're working in Amenemose. But Amenemope was a, a, a man who seemed to have one of these roles. Inside his tomb there's a text called the Hour Ritual and um, what he needed to do or what we think he needed to do throughout the night was make certain recitations or, or certain prayers at each hour so that the sun would uh, 
overcome each specific enemy and continue on its journey, which comes back again to this religious idea. They wanted mm. the sun to keep on going and, and they didn't always know that it, that it would happen. So I've just got a question here. Which came first or which was more important? Was it the sun itself or was it the God that represented the sun? Uh, Does uh, that, make, that question make sense? Yeah. Like, were they particularly religious or were they, were they superstitious in a way? Was it that they were... Um, yeah. mm. Probably both, but it, and, and it would have they would have merged together in some early time before we, there was anything written down where the sun itself um, was also the gods. There's an interesting time during the New Kingdom, the Amarna period, where a, a, a lot the, the man or king, Pharaoh by the name of Akhenaten, pushed towards a monotheistic society and got rid of all of the other gods and, and had just worshipping the sun disc, mm. um, which is an interesting time. Um, so he tried to change all of religion. That was the guy with the big hips? Yes, that's the one, So, uh, which is either an artistic convention or, or some type of, um, I don't know, disease or, or some deformation. Um, so he, he changed the, the attention to the sun, changed the name of the sun, so people were worshipping the physical disc. And um, to, to get a bit scientific for a second, he a lot of the representations of sun at the time, they no longer had the head of um, the falcon or anything like that, but it was a physical sun disc with these arms that were coming down in what we would today call crepuscular rays or anti-crepuscular rays, which are these very straight and converging sun rays. So, but again, back then they explained it in a religious way, the sun was reaching out to their people, whereas mm. there is a scientific undertone in there. Yeah. Which I don't think answers the question, but it's an interesting thought that just came to yeah. me. Yeah. Well, I guess this is the thing, though, isn't it? What, and it's the same with Indigenous Australians, that they took their environment and studied it and tried to make an understanding of it, which became their science, really. And yeah. whether, whether it was real to you know, our standards or not is not the question. It made sense to them. It gave them an explanation. Yeah, and and particularly in, in Australia, there was a, a really big connection between the land and the sky. So many people would have heard of the emu in the sky. So in particular, Aboriginal nations would would use the sky as a type of calendar, or, or in a way, even a food menu. It would tell them when certain food sources um, were available. One person you should track down if you're interested is, is Dwayne Haymaker. He's really um, pushing the uh, indigenous astronomy story and at the moment talking about how continuing light pollution is and the expanding cities is, is further disconnecting Aboriginal cultures from their, their mm. sky and from their culture. What's his paper called? Whitening? He talks about sky, genocide. Yeah, genocide, exactly. yeah. yeah it's Are you very, aware? Very, yeah, you yeah I've, I have read it, yeah. So and, and, and just sort of coming towards the end of the podcast really but it astounds me when you look at footage of the ISS flying over Egypt just how much light pollution you know there's this intense river uh, you know of light literally the Nile completely oh, lit up uh, probably one of the most densely um, lit up areas in the world really 
Yeah, I would agree. Mm. And I, I question not that, well, I question, is there ever an opportunity that you might be able to talk about light pollution in Egypt? This to is the a good, Egyptians. <laughs> yeah, this is a good question. Um, there's been a couple of instances there where we stay in Luxor in the south and there's been a blackout and I've been so excited that there might be a nice view of the sky because Egypt is very much filled with those orange sodium-like lamps. Um, so running to the roof to, to look towards the stars. Um, but unfortunately, there's so many other cities around that are not blacked out that their view of the sky is really um, not so great within the Nile itself. I do have this sort of pipe dream to one day take some astronomy outreach there and, and maybe one time ago take a telescope and even just pointing towards the moon or pointing mm. towards some planets I think would be a big wow factor for many people because the light pollution itself is, is very bad within the Nile and you don't have to go far beyond the Nile to see the sky but the, the so much of all, almost the entire population is is within that light filled sky. Well, within the water reach as well, I guess. Which is yeah. But I guess the other thing is that they have issues with dust. So you're never going to get that perfectly clear sky. Yes, well, that is true. Really. Mm. Well, mm. The, there's not very many clouds, but yeah, the dust would be a problem. That's mm. certainly true. Mm. In fact, just as I'm talking about this, I recall the night that we went out to the telescopes in Casamaya. Was that uh, where it was? In Egypt? Yeah. No, no, the, the modern telescope. And they were talking about the fact that they're basically going to have to move their telescopes because they... Uh, this is the expansion of Cairo. So exactly, they keep on the pushing the borders. Yeah. Mm. Which mm. is a terrible thing because they have this enormous and, and really powerful and, and telescope that could do some great science. Um, but it's something that's not on the forefront of people's minds, mm. um, which is the same thing that plagued Sydney Observatory 100 and 150 years ago, almost you know, probably last 100 years or so, that the, the cities are expanding and astronomy is trying to escape that. Mm. Well, to the extent of actually putting telescopes in space, aren't they? So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Hubble Although, or James Webb will be next. One day it'll get up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we'll have something on the moon. That will be the next step. That will yeah. be fantastic. Yeah, eventually. that makes sense too. We can dream. I'm sure Elon Musk will get there eventually. <laughs> He's talking <Awesome>. about Mars. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of a longer journey, but it's, it could be worthwhile. Mm. So, Brennan, what would you tell anybody? Um, you spent a lot of time under the night sky, you know, at Sydney Observatory and out in Egypt. What What is the thing that draws you to that environment? What, what, what would you want to share with people who'd never experienced it? I think there's a lot of wow factors that can be explored throughout astronomy. And, and at the observatory, one of these is inside our planetarium. There's a cosy little planetarium there that fits 18 people or so. And we take people from the the city sky where you might see, I don't know, not many stars, 50, 60 or 70 if you're lucky, into this planetarium where we turn off light pollution and, and turn off the city, even get rid of the city, get rid of clouds and show people what, what is there. And I think without fail every time that people experience this, there is a wow. And, and people, I think, are, are very much removed from any view of the sky, um, which is why... You, you do wonderful things about taking people outside of the city into these destinations to view different parts of the sky. So, so my advice would be to go and experience it, to make the effort to um, either, well, I guess, 
travel outside of the, the, this bubble of light pollution to, to look up at the sky. And I think once you've done it once or twice, you'll, you'll be hooked and you'll try to seek out these experiences, try to see more and learn more. Mm. The sky and astronomy is just this wonderful fascination. It's infinite. Mm. Yeah, literally, or perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> and just to finish up, what's your, do you have a, a, a time in a dark environment that was absolutely mind-blowing or, you know, under the stars or, you know, straight in desert in Egypt? What was an, is there a memorable moment? Um, I do recall going out into the western desert into Egypt uh, on one of my earlier tours there, but I think I timed it badly and there was a full moon around, so I was blown away by the, the amount of stars that were there, but, but a little, also a little bit disappointed that there could have been more. Um, and there was also some interesting wildlife, those foxes with the big ears, fending <laughs> foxes, I don't, or I don't know if they're Australian, but yeah, this is the fox things. I think my my best experiences would actually be from um, my my parent, my mum's house, which is in Tumbiumbi, just an hour and 20 minutes north of Sydney. And the skies there, it's this little rural property. The skies there are, uh, are so dark that on a great night, the Milky Way casts a shadow. Mm. And I think experiencing that, looking up towards the Milky Way and the, the dark patches throughout it, or even the Magellanic clouds, the galaxies near us, when you look up at the sky when it's casting a shadow, even though it's night, and to think about some of the numbers that are out there, the distances, the, the amount of other galaxies, it's a, it's a real wow factor. Mm. So I guess my message would be please turn off unnecessary lights so <laughs> that we can do more of this, more looking at the sky and more enjoying what's up there. Fantastic. Great. Thanks, Brendan. I'm going to leave it on that note. Thank you very much for your time and uh, encourage people to check out your thesis when it comes out in the very near future. It's not it? far away. I'll, <laughs> I'll click submit sometime soon. But thanks for the opportunity to talk about Egypt and about astronomy. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you.